You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Tours in central France was the site of one of the most important battles in history in the year 732. The forces of the Franks and Aquitanians faced off against the Umayyad Caliphate, where Charles Martel led the victorious Europeans in fighting back the expansion of Muslim forces. The Umayyad Caliphate was established in 661 and had expanded their territory across all of northern Africa and into the Iberian Peninsula, looking to drive further into Western Europe. Just three decades earlier, in the year 632, the Rashidun Caliphate was established and expanded their territory from the Arabian Peninsula. In a series of military victories over the Eastern Roman Empire and the Sassanid Persians, the rapid expansion of territory set the stage for one of the largest empires in early modern history. The establishment of this first caliphate, a derived word in Arabic to denote a political religious ruler who derives power as a successor selected by God, occurred upon the death of the prophet Muhammad. Born in 570 to a tribal leader in the trading city of Mecca, Muhammad was raised by his grandfather and uncle after the death of his parents. Around the age of 40, he was visited by the angel Gabriel and received the revelation of the words of God. Muhammad faced opposition in Mecca as he preached of an all-powerful single God shared by Judaism and Christianity. He migrated from Mecca to Medina in 622 and eventually raised an army of his faithful followers to conquer Mecca seven years later in 629. By the time of his death, just three years later, the Islamic faith, as shared by Muhammad through his revelations from God, had unified the entire Arabian Peninsula. The clash of Muhammad's successors and the forces of Charles Martel 100 years later illustrate the vast changes of political entities and the military power on the European continent that had occurred over the preceding centuries. Their legacies remain felt today. Welcome to the History of Modern Politics. That voice was Matt Whitliffe, and my name is Chris Spangle, and we thank you so much for joining us. You can get early release episodes at thehistoryofmodernpolitics.com. Sign up there for reading lists and outlines and video and all kinds of extras. If you aren't a Wall Plus patron, you can sign up at historyofmodernpolitics.com. Thank you so much for joining us. Now, Matt, why is this story important? Yeah, I mean, this story really helps us set the stage of, you know, what what is going on throughout throughout the continent. And, and, you know, as we've talked about in previous episodes, you know, most of our story arc is concerning the British as we ultimately get to, you know, modern politics. And you can't tell the story of Britain without the story of France. Right. Uh, there's there's ongoing wars between Fr- the French and the British. It's like a national pastime <laughs> for both of them. Uh, and we need to understand the dynamics of how the French came to be. Uh, in order to talk about, you know, kind of what comes next. And, you know, we'll learn later that even the early kings of England that we'll, we'll talk about, you know, really are French people, <laughs> right? Yeah, I mean, in doing this show, I've been surprised to learn that French was the official language of England for a very long time. Much of our English words come from the, the French of this period, and, and legal French was the way that lawyers did business for a very long time in England. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, Charles Martel, we'll get to him featured later here in the episode. But, you know, that clash with the with the Muslim world in in his lifetime really is reviewed in history as kind of being a what could have been a massive potential turning point. Right. Even in modern days, we we hear of, 
you know, the fear of uh, the spread of communism or Hitler taking over everything or, or the Muslims taking over everything. And this is one of those moments in history where Martel being victorious in the Battle of Tours, you know, is viewed as potentially having prevented uh, the, the Muslim world, the caliphate, you know, spreading throughout the entire continent of Europe. Yeah, we could all all be uh, Muslim instead of Christian. I mean, because we're remember, we're what to this the story that we're talking about today is 395 to 885. Islam comes around in the 600s and, and rapidly starts to expand. And we still feel those tensions today. And you obviously want to talk about the Crusades and, and the how important that was in future episodes. But Today's episode really just shows that Britain isn't an isolated outpost, much like today, China versus America versus Russia. There's a lot of interconnectedness. There's a lot of tension that comes about from that. You know, and it's not all bad. It's not all good. It's it's just is what it is. It, like it is what it is. Yeah. You're connected militarily, economically, culturally, and dynastically. So we, we started this episode it was titled if you look at the original outline that we posted in our introduction episode this is going to be about the holy roman empire matt it was supposed to be but as as you know we got in and and did our research and really wanted to connect the story together um you know we're barely going to talk about the holy roman empire in fact i think (laughs) other than just talking about it right now here in the episode the words probably won't uh won't come back up again but you know you know the goal of this first season, uh, or I'd say the midpoint high point of this first season of our episodes is going to be the Magna Carta, right? A, a foundational event in the history of liberty, the history of political development uh, in Britain. And, you know, all of the episodes so far and really kind of the next one or two are just are preludes to make sure that we're, we're you know, setting the stage, understanding all the various pieces on the chessboard and the backgrounds and the history that will help us get to that Magna Carta. And and we can't explain the events that surrounded the signing of the Magna Carta without explaining the Byzantine Empire and and the Muslim world and what was going on in the continent with uh, the establishment of what eventually became France and, and the Holy Roman Empire and such. Because it's all very consequential. The, the We call these the Dark Ages because there isn't a lot of written history about the Dark Ages. You have the fall of Rome, and so writing goes away. I mean, there are some bishops, there are some kings, there are some some people who write, we know a lot about Charlemagne because he, he um, well, I don't think he wrote, he did read, uh, mm-hmm. he, he didn't write anything, excuse me. Um, we know a lot about him because they left a lot of recorded written records. Um, and so, who, who knows what was happening in, in some of these other areas, but we focus on Charlemagne in history because of that written record. And this kind of jump, this kind of illustrates the textbook view of history, right? Like we all go to school, we sit in world history, and you start chapter seven, and you know you're okay. We just finished the Roman Empire. Now we're talking about maybe some Huns and the Holy Roman Empire and Charlemagne, right? But there's right. a lot and more there. There, there's a lot more there, and uh, you know, th- there's not a. I mean, we're doing episodes, of course, so we have clean breaks between episodes. And, mm-hmm. and when you read history textbooks in school, uh, or even in in you know uh, in college or whatever, there's those clean breaks. And and what's you know we want to illustrate today is it, it's not a clean break from the fall of the Roman Empire in the West suddenly to you know next thing you know you have Charlemagne and the Holy Roman Empire and such. I mean, it it, it is a continuous arc and story, and all those forces 
never stop and rest just because again we don't have that that same detailed history uh due to the lack of writing in this early middle ages dark ages period doesn't mean that the evidence isn't enough there when you dig into it to see that the the thread just continues all the way through yeah so let's jump back in where we left off in the year 395 with theodosius the first um dying just four months after the reuniting of the eastern and western empires which leaves please pronounce Stilcho. that Stilcho. Yep, Stilcho Stilcho is a very that sounds like one of the Marx brothers uh, <laughs> <laughs> he was a vandal who was in charge of the west as Honorius uh, age 10 was too young his older brother Arcadius was 17 and he inherited the east so continue on uh, yeah what happened what happened shortly after that happened yeah, I mean, in, in that same year, the, the Huns, who we haven't talked about yet so far, these are, they're not a Germanic tribe. This is a, a mm. completely different people who we believe migrated from Central Asia through modern Russia, through the, the European steppe, right, and launched some of their massive attacks on the Holy Roman Empire in both, in both the East and the West. And, and this invasion was like a key dominating factor into you know, yet another round of all of those Germanic tribes migrating, you know, as we talked about in, in episode three, all the way, or, or even ex- actually also in episode four, migrating, you know, all the way throughout um, and changing the territories in which they live in and putting threats on the on the Roman border. So, you know, this, the, the big year uh, or one of the turning points is in 407, when just massive, massive amounts of German, Germanic tribes cross the Rhine, which had historically been that that border territory between the germanic tribes the barbarians mm-hmm. right and, and the very civilized romans well but the huns were frightening people like they, they were, were scared like go, go google huns basically in this era because they they had shaped their heads and looked almost like the cone heads uh you know with a flat bl- back and then like they had a very terrifying look and so mm-hmm. they scared the pants off of people but this just shows you that migration shapes history in a in a profound way as we see it today as you know the syrian refugees move into europe or you know uh, central americans come to settle in america and that changes different flavors of things so that it, that is definitely an important because we tend to think oh it's all an invasion but a lot of right. it was migration and and a lot of what we talk about in terms of britain being settled by the vikings it wasn't all violent. That stuff stands out. A lot of it was, well, let's just move in and join the farming community and take a, a British wife. Um, and yep. that's kind of the same here, but, you know, the people who held power freak out and uh, call them barbarians. Now, over these same years, Alaric I emerged as one of the first kings of the Visigoths, the Western Goths, as contrasted with the Ostrogoths or the Eastern Goths. Alaric Alaric, excuse me, had been a Roman soldier and had used chaos to rise in power and play Rome against Constantinople. And go ahead, Matt. Yeah, I was going to say, if you remember from, you know, when we detailed out where where all these Germanic tribes came from and how their migration patterns moved, um, you know, the the Goths at this point had settled like kind of squarely between the power centers of the Western Empire and the Eastern Empire, right? And so Mm -hmm. Alaric was there to be able to... um, be an ally at some times and pit them against each other at other times and, and ultimately, you know, gain, gain power through that. So with the Germanic tribes fully present inside the former borders of the empire, and in most cases, at least notionally as federati, 
Alaric finds his moment and sacks Roman 410. Now, recall, this is the same year that Honorius tells Britain that they have to fend for themselves. So if the Huns weren't already enough of a menace, the famous Attila comes into power in 435 and fully consolidates power in 444. We were talking before the show that, like, Attila the Hun, you've heard that, and it's, you know, like a famous name in history. And and I think people kind of go, oh, is that the guy that came over the Alps with the elephants? You know, or is that the guy that came from uh, Mongolia and invaded Russia? Like, I think some of these names sort of, Matt, you get confused. You're not t- totally sure who Attila the Hun is and where they appeared in history because, you know, the... the uh, um, you know, a lot of these people lived a thousand years apart, <laughs> right? But you right. just vaguely yeah. remember yeah. that. Absolutely, Chris. And and while again, we're we're ultimately trying to sto- tell the story of of modern politics and and get you know to like how that developed. I think it's important as we go throughout history to be able to sprinkle in the names and understand where where they came into play throughout the course of history. So Attila yeah. is one of those examples here, and and you know he fully consolidates power. He has massive military victories is almost looked as invincible and is extracting tribute from both the Eastern Roman empire and the Western Roman empire emperor and just becomes insanely, insanely wealthy. And um, in, in one of his moments, he's trying to get an alliance with Valentinian the third to then attack the Visigoths who by this time have like run scared from the Huns and moved into what is now, you know, what's Gaul, right? We've talked about Gaul a lot. So modern day France, and through this, Attila receives a letter from Honoria, who's the sister of the emperor, uh, Valentinian III. And she's saying, hey, um, will you marry me? I'm, <laughs> I'm, supposed to be, I'm supposed to be married off to this Roman senator. Here's my engagement ring. Um, please come rescue me. And, and Attila's like, okay, great. And, and then reaches back to Valentinian III and says, I want half of the Roman Empire <laughs> in, as, as a marriage dowry for your sister. And uh, Valentinian doesn't take too, too well to that. Uh, so Attila ends up moving off into military campaigns in, in Gaul. And, you know, again, in one of these big battles in France, in Gaul, uh, in the, the, what's called the Battle of the Catalonian Plains, he's actually defeated in 451 by a, a unified force of Romes and Goths and uh, Romans and Goths and, and others. And so he comes back to Italy ready to marry Honoria and, you know, uh, exact his revenge on Valentinian. And uh, in an interesting, you know, moment in history, Valentinian sends out Pope Leo III and two other Roman senators, or excuse me, Pope Leo I and two other Roman senators to go negotiate and, and try to hold Attila back. And wonder of all wonders, Attila does, right? <laughs> right. And in the history doesn't really know what exactly happened, what Pope Leo said to him, but he is given all the credit of you know, telling Attila to go home. Yeah, that's kind of, and, and then he's, the Huns are never a threat again, and this is sort of a, a common theme, is you have a, a great man of history like Attila the Hun, or we'll see with Charlemagne, that that takes, springs off of a a lesser predecessor who sets the stage, the, the great man comes and builds up something big, and then it's just in their wake, like a bunch of losers. <laughs> um, so... Right. This is a very common theme throughout history. So let's talk about the political state of Europe at the fall of the Western Roman Empire. So 25 years following Attila, uh, Europe continues to be mired with the dynamic of emperors dealing with military generals who often wielded more power, as we saw in the Fall of Rome episodes. 
and they're balancing alliances with Germanic tribes and trying to hold back the other tribes who threatened the Roman territory. Now, by 476, it's over when Odysseus. Odysseus. All right. I'm not great with names. I've never That's been right. great with names. So uh, listeners of this program are just going to have to get used to it. Matt's I've also help. heard Odecur. Either I think either one is probably all right. Uh, and he gained control of Italy and was even acknowledged by Constantinople and Emperor Zeno as the king of Italy. Uh, now we're skipping some good stories, Matt, aren't we? Oh yeah, of course. I mean, and that'll happen throughout throughout this episode, and, and little known stories. But once you dig in, they're they're really good. But unfortunately, we're just gonna have to. But that's <laughs> move part of why. Of but that's part of why we do the show notes, so you can go back and look. And then the reading lists are uh, comprehensive. So every episode, you could probably spend two years reading just the books that we've collected that that we have read over uh, the history of our intellectual pursuits. We put some podcasts, some documentaries, some various things to help you kind of learn some more of these stories. So make sure that you check that out uh, in the show notes. That's available to members at historyofmodernpolitics.com. Um, but, you know, there's yeah. there's great stories like Adius, Theodoric, Majorian, Rysimer, and many, many more. That's right. So, so now we're in, in 476, and, you know, I don't want to... This will be a little dense, so we want to go kind of quickly, but, you know, we want to give you a, a decent tour of like, okay, who's where in 476 when, at least according to, if you have to put a break in history of when the fall of the Western Roman Empire happened, like what what does the rest of Europe kind of look like at this point? So starting kind of due to the north um, in what's north of Italy, modern day Switzerland, you have the Alemanni people. So this is a Germanic tribe. I think we touched on them briefly and they're operating somewhat independently in the Rhine Valley. You move to the east. We have a very short lived kingdom of the Rugii. Um, they emerged after the fall of the Huns because this is the territory that was the, the central power of the Huns sitting north of the Balkans. And they end up ultimately getting conquered quickly by their neighbors to the east, who happen to be the Ostrogoths. They're led by Theodoric, um, later known as Theodoric the Great. And this is different than the Theodoric we already talked about. This episode is going to be crazy with names of people that are like the same name over and over again. So this is like one of the first examples here. Um, and, and at this time, they're federati, which if I don't think we've covered what a federati means. And we'll get into this deeper in, in the next episode. But it's think of it as a, um, uh, you know, they're, they're operating under the kind of cooperation, but subordinate to uh, in this case, the Eastern Roman Empire. Um, so at this point, Ostrogoths are aligned to and kind of a sub-kingdom of, but still independent of the Eastern Roman Empire. And Theodoric is just kind of settling into the power, and he eventually goes around in 493, and the Ostrogoths conquer Italy, okay? Uh, and then the last piece, before I turn it over to you, Chris, is um, in in modern-day Croatia and the Dalmatian Strip, uh, you have a rump state or a former remnant of the Western Roman Empire ruled by Julius Nepos, who thinks of himself still as the Western Roman Emperor, but has no power and he's quickly you know assassinated by Odeker and and Odeker comes over and takes control of that territory in 480. Yeah, so one thing that people need to understand is the two empires, the Eastern Empire, which is, you know, over more towards uh you know, Turkey, modern day Turkey, and then the Western Empire, which is over more towards modern day France. Um the the Eastern Roman Empire remained powerful for a long time after the fall, the quote-unquote fall of the Roman Empire versus the Western. The Western Empire 
collapsed under the weight of these many different tribes. And so the still powerful Eastern Roman Empire under Zeno spanned from the Balkans and modern-day Greece through modern-day Turkey and all throughout the Mediterranean coast down the Levant, which is like, think Israel, Sinai, the Sinai Peninsula, uh, the Nile Valley, uh, to modern-day Libya over on the northern coast of Africa. Now, the Vandals had established their territory along the central and western Mediterranean coast of North Africa and also held some islands, including part of Sicily. The Visigothic Kingdom held most of the Iberian Peninsula, including the Suebic Kingdom in the area of modern-day Portugal, which is next to Spain, and had territory well into Gaul, which is modern-day France and Germany. Uh, Landlocked to the northeast of the Visigoths were the Burgundians, which is one of my favorite names to say in history. Uh, in the, the Burgundians is a great name. Uh, in northern Gaul, along the coast, was another rump state of the Roman Empire called the Kingdom of Saucians, or the realm of Sagarius. Now, finally to the north of the Saucians uh, was, and also sharing a border with the Burgundians and Alemanni, are the Franks. So, it's worth noting that our friends in the last episode, the Frisians, Saxons, the Jutes, the Angles are further to the northeast and north of what we've covered. So the Franks are kind of like, what, northern central France, the Frisian, Saxons, Jutes, and Angles are more towards Scandinavia? Yeah, yeah. If you think like modern day Netherlands into even maybe parts of Belgium and over to like the northwestern parts of Germany is where the, the Frisians and Saxons are. Gotcha. So this brings us to Clovis and the Franks. The Franks are very important. And out of the, the, the Franks are very strong in this period. And uh, obviously, Francia, France, uh, is sort of, again, where, where you start to see some of the modern things, the words that we use all start to develop. And like we said, you've heard of Charlemagne. You've probably heard that name. Maybe you've heard of Charles Martel. But Matt, not a lot of people have heard of Clovis. And Clovis was really, really important, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah. I mean, he is the first to really unite the Franks and establish, you know, rule over the territory of all of what is France today um, after it was part of Rome, right? After it was part of the Roman Empire. So, you know, you're tempted to kind of start your discussion of France with like, and then Clovis came along, but like he lives right in this period of time that we've been, <laughs> that we've been talking about. So uh, at 470 in 476, which is the, the exact time that we're saying is the fall of the Roman empire. Childeric the first is King of the Franks. Um, so not much is known about him, but records seem to suggest that he had been in the Roman military helped fight off the Visigoths, um, you know, appears to have allied himself with Odeker and maybe even fought as a young man against the Huns. Um, Childeric dies five years later in, in 481, and his 16-year-old son Clovis now comes to power as king of the Franks. And Clovis quickly moves to conquer Sagarius, that rump state of the Sassans in 491. Uh, maybe not quickly, but 10 years later, he's only 16 years old, right? So by the time he's 26, <laughs> right. he's, he's now conquered Sagarius. And through a series of political moves, he, he's working to build his support throughout Gaul. And he, he, you know, instead of trying to execute everybody from Sagarius's army, he incorporates them into his army. He takes a Catholic wife, converts to Catholicism, aligns himself with the, the elite, the Gallo-Roman elite who do have that, that uh, tie back to Christianity. And these political moves and military victories through, through that, he's, he eventually unifies all of Gaul, um, 
taking significant ter- away, territory away from the, the Visigoths and the Alamanni. Um, so the Visigoths have now fully retreated into Hispania, the Iberian Peninsula, and the Alamanni are, are essentially incorporated into the Frankish kingdom. Yeah, and in this story, we sort of see what we saw in the last episode in Britain. You have the Catholic Church start to develop some power. Part of that is because they bring some structure. They bring the written word. They bring bishops that that have a higher authority that can be appealed to. And I don't mean God. I mean the Pope for most of these people because – being the cynical observer of politics that I am, uh, a person like Clovis wants the Roman support so he can then claim the mantle of God and have the Pope on his side. And this is a very common theme throughout all of these stories. And that's partly why the Catholic Church becomes so powerful over time, um, because they, you see in Clovis a great politician, and a lot of these guys like Attila and Clovis, and they're, they're good networkers. Mm-hmm. And they're good at, at um, gathering different tribes together and mediating between the different warring factions and creating a cohesive movement uh, that aligns support. They, they re- realign the politics of the area. And so, you know, when we're talking about, you know, roughly 300 to 800 Mm-hmm. We're going from the the Christian church being what we see in the book of Acts, starting in, you know, Judea and expanding out kind of in the in the Holy Land. And during this period you have, you know, you have people retreating like the desert fathers into the into Egypt and there's a lot of uh you know, what the remnants now are the Coptic Christians in Egypt. There's some um gestation there of the the modern church but then modern day turkey in this period plays a huge role in helping propel the christian church into what it is and now we're starting to see it move into europe Mm -hmm. and you're starting to see the roman catholic church develop some power so we need to talk about some of how that developed because if we're going to talk about the history of britain then we obviously need to talk about the importance of catholicism so in doing our research for the show, what have we learned, Matt? Yeah, I mean, it, it, the, the Catholic Church um, really starts to grow and accumulate property um, through its legalization, right, that, that we talked about uh, under, under Constantine. So it, it can't be understated in, in importance, but it's maybe not quite as straightforward as it might be on the surface. Um, being able to be openly Christian is obviously, you know, an obvious benefit that you're not being subject to persecution or death. Um, but there's, there's additional ways. So the church is allowed to actually accumulate property. Um, and so when the, when church followers give to the church, they, the church starts to acquire lands and become wealthy. And that is not then extracted back into the hands of the state, right? Into secular leaders. It, it's allowed to stay with the church and, you know, a- accumulating, uh, land and, and wealth certainly leads to, to power. And in fact, it's, not just sanctioned, it, it starts to become even endorsed, and then the elites start to follow suit. The church also starts to get its own legal jurisdiction. We'll talk about in a future future episode kind of the, the history and development of law, right? But, you know, this is an important piece. The church actually starts to be able to run its own independent 
legal system and arbitrate disputes amongst people. And sometimes people would rather do that through the church than through the state. And that is another factor that, you know, really starts to drive additional power and influence to the church. And as the Roman Empire falls from Diocletian's autocratic utopia that he tried to set up through the, you know, the ongoing civil wars and such into military chaos and and dissolution. One of the safest and best places for those who wanted to be educated and learn and, and even have training to whether they went into back into politics or secular leadership versus church leadership was in the church. And, Mm -hmm. and so the sanctuary of the church, you know, uh, had, you know, writing and knowledge and, and all of these things that, you know, was hard to come across in daily life in, in the secular world. Yeah. So with these notes as a backdrop, there are just a few key individuals in the development in this period that we want to guidepost for you because you've heard their names and maybe just give you a little brief background. And then if you find them interesting, you can go and do your research. Um, so let's talk about Ambrose. Uh, he was born in 340 in Gaul, again, France, Germany today, uh, to Christian parents, and he moved to Milan. He was well-educated and rose through the Roman secular government, becoming the governor of the province in 372. Remember, being the governor of a province was lucrative. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And two years later, he accepted the position of Bishop of Milan, making him the first high-ranking upper-class Roman official to take the office of bishop, which tells you where the money's going uh so he was well acquainted with roman emperors and if you recall christianity was made the official state religion of the empire in 380 with the edict of thessalonica now ambrose's political connections education and strong faith evidence through his writings were a major influence on the roman upper and imperial class he died in 397 Yep. And then we move just a, around the same period, Jerome, born in the 340s in uh, modern Croatia in a Dalmatian village. He, he grew up well-educated as well, converts to Christianity in the 360s while in Rome. Uh, it, it's part of his training and, and education. He goes on to dis- transcribe one of the most famous translations of the New Testament. Uh, he also translates a lot of the Old Testament, but into the Latin Vulgate, which is the, the common you know, language of the people in, throughout the Roman Empire. So he permanently locate, relocates to Bethlehem, um, living in a small cave as a, in a meager life and continues his prolific writing and connections, you know, with other people throughout the empire, right? I mean, that shouldn't be understated that just because, again, it's the Dark Ages, people are, com- you know, sharing letters and communicating and, and word does travel, right? And so um, he he lives in what was allegedly the same cave where Jesus was born from 388 until his death in the year 420. Yeah, so, it, and let's just take note of the Vulgate and its importance in future episodes, but when you're talking about the, the, the people that we know and the history that we read today, a lot of it is because it was amplified, copied, and written down and after during the fall of Rome, right? So we don't have Homer in his handwriting. We don't have Virgil in his handwriting. We don't have Paul in his handwriting. We have copies Mm -hmm. that survived things like the burning of the library in Alexandria. Had that not happened, then we'd probably have a lot more uh, information. But the the Bible, because of the Latin Vulgate and Virgil's uh, writings, are the two most well-preserved ancient texts that we have, which leads us to St. Augustine of Hippo. 
he was born in North Africa in 354 to an upper-class family. He spoke Latin and had a job as a professor of rhetoric. And upon his conversion to Christianity in 386, he devoted his life to his faith and used his education and expertise to explain his views on theology and a wide range of so- philosophical and social topics. And he had been in many different streams of uh, religions and philosophies. You know, in the uh, he had been a Manichaean, which Manichaeism you should look up. It's it's an apocalyptic vision. It's a very interesting religion that has some parallels to how people act today. Uh, he had been a Neopla- uh, Neoplatonist. And then he became a Christian, and he used that background to kind of synthesize everything. Very, he was uh, one of the most prolific Latin writers, uh, one of the well, one of the most well-preserved people that we we have writings of. And he was really the bridge between the classical period and the medieval period in religious and political thought. And his writing set the tone for the next thousand years. And you can argue today of religious, political, and philosophical thought in Europe. It just cannot be understated how important Augustine is to the Western mind, and he's an important figure you should learn more about. And he was one of the first theological anthropologists, which relates how humans and God interact with each other and how that plays out in the social sciences. He also helped codify the doctrine of original sin, meaning that Adam and Eve's sin against God tainted nature and all of humankind. Uh, He also shaped the idea of just war, whereas Christians had been pacifists. He argued Christians should be pacifists, but there are exceptions and certain criteria where not defending oneself or the vulnerable would actually be a sin. Uh, So that sort of led to a lot of our medieval kings and uh, people today saying, well, if we don't do this, then we're sinning. We need to go Mm -hmm. to war. And then uh, St. Augustine died in the year 430. Yep, and then the last one we want to cover from this era is, is Leo, uh, who became Pope Leo the First that we discussed in the negotiations with Attila the Hun. Leo was born in 400 in Tuscany, and he had been a deacon and had an aristocratic background and put him in connection with high-ranking Roman officials, and he had actually been a diplomat arbiter on behalf of the emperor even before he rose to being a pope. Um, so he had that reputation and and those connections, and then you know, he was further elevated uh, after being in the office of the Pope with his negotiations with Attila, which, you know, many viewed as like a divine sign, like that he must have, it was a miracle that he was able to get Attila to, to walk away and the Huns ultimately disappear just a few years later. So he, he is referred in history as Pope Leo the Great, um, and he died in 461. So, so these four individuals who are basically all contemporaries, there's overlap amongst them all, um, you know, they combined prolific writing, diplomacy, political connections, and, and, and all of this helped accelerate the influence of the church in the time when the power of the state was waning, which, you know, kind of that, that perfect storm of things coming together, which really accelerated um, the influence of the Catholic church. Yeah, and then two points before we move back to France, because there, this is an important debate that shapes a lot of future conversations, and it is Arianism and the primacy of Rome. Uh, this still goes on between the Methodists and the, the, you know, the uh, Reformed people today in today's church. 
Uh, Arius was a church leader to whom the term Arianism is derived, and the debate over Arianism had to do with the nature of Jesus, namely whether he was the co-eternal with God the Father or distinct and subordinate. And this debate was central to the Council of Nicaea in 325 that Constantinople the Great called. Uh, Arianism was rejected as heresy by the church leadership. However, Arianism persisted and had many, many adherents. Uh, and this is very common. You have a lot of debates because, remember, it's not one clear line of we're all pagan, now we're all Christian. Right. Uh, and so Augustine was really, uh, uh, going back to Augustine, very important in reshaping the the mind of the Western people from your tribal paganism to your uh, your Christian worldview that you see now. Now, notably, the Germanic tribes and kingdoms that converted to Christianity tended to adopt Arianism as opposed to Catholicism. In this way, Clovis was unique because he became Catholic and not Arian, like his Visigothic and Alemanni neighbors. Uh, so you you see that that, that blending of, of Arianism with existing religions. And, you know, Matt, it's like one of those things that, well, you know, Easter and Christmas were actually pagan holiday. You know, it's like, yeah, yeah. that's where this comes from because it was a political tool and useful at the time. That's right. And and then the other aspect is, you know, as the Western Empire is is crumbling, the Catholic Church did not, right? And the influence of church leaders that we just discussed uh, continued the acceptance of Nicene Christianity in the Eastern Roman Empire. And the Bishop of Rome, Rome then thus remained important and recognized. And, you know, if you recall that the, uh, the four main holy sees, you know, bishoprics were Rome and Constantinople, Antioch and, and Alexandria, three of those are in the east, only one of them is in the west. Right. right. And as as the Eastern Roman Empire kind of tries to figure out, you know, what they care about the most in the west, it was just Rome. And this allowed and that and the combination of, you know, their claim to being, you know, uh, back to Peter as opposed to Mark, um, you know, the disciples really helped to further cement the and establish this notion of primacy of the Bishop of Rome as the true Pope. If you remember, you know, or true leader of the church, if you remember, like the name Pope didn't really fully kind of come in and, and cement to the Bishop of Rome until, you know, a few centuries later still mm-hmm. at this point. So. So let's talk about the Merovingian to the Carolingian dynasty. Let's jump back to France. And as you study their history, you're going to run into the Ians, as I uh, came to call them, the Merovingians. So tell us about Clovis to Charles Martel, Matt. Yeah, so so Clovis, you know, his dynasty, uh, the Merovingian dynasty, named after his, you know, the uh, his grandfather, Merovich, uh, greatly expanded. He died in four, 511. And, you know, importantly the the frankish people practiced a hereditary monarchy but they also practiced partible inheritance which means all your land and territory is split evenly amongst the sons as opposed to just going to the the eldest firstborn son right so this is an important piece of what's going to happen over the next few centuries so clovis has four adult sons and the the kingdom that he is he has created now gets divided into four places mm, and, and Chris, that, like what happens when when you know yeah. territory gets divided yeah amongst- i would just think you know the four brothers they probably grew up together playing football with each other you know just <laughs> having fun with each oh no it it ended up in civil war intrigue assassinations chaos tactical marriages and all the typical things that we've seen throughout history it's it's like four <laughs> it's just like we saw with diocletian 
good idea. Not really working with how human nature works. So th- that's just what happened in the Frankish kingdom. That it, it broke apart. The power shifts and the sheer volume of murdering of family members that occurs over the next 200 years is just really amazing uh, in a bad way. And another part of the story that we will just have to skip past, to be honest with you, but it's worth reading up on. So we'll have to spare you of Theodoric and Childebert and... Cholodomar and Clothar and Thubert and all Theobald, all these Sigbert, all these cool people like Dagobert, Matt. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, who doesn't want to learn about Chilperic? Chilperic, right? Yeah, Yeah, exactly. No, I mean, some some great names and it really is just 200 years of chaos. The one person we'll just call out, you should go read about her is Brunhilda. Um, mm. You know, she she is a powerful female leader that actually like wields a ton of power through this this chaotic era, like wielding her sons against each other and marriages and and all sorts of good stuff. But um, so you know, let's skip ahead during that period. Territory is changing off and on. The your your favorite, the Burgundians, mm-hmm. are incorporated into the kingdom. We get new names of various regions that that come out through this: Neustria, Austrasia, and Aquitaine. And the name Francia starts to emerge in this era. And, you know, now we'll get to Charles Martel. So we, we mentioned him in the cold open. He comes around the state. He comes to the stage around 715. And is he a king? No, he's not a king. He is major mayor of the palace. Or if you've heard the phrase, the major domo, that that's the role that Charles Martel has of Austrasia. And over the decades, this position had become increasingly more powerful as really kind of the grownups in the room and the real power behind what's going on because the Merovingian Kings are all fighting and killing each other and battling over dynastic power. This happens, this happens a lot. Like in the war of the roses, for instance, the, the administrative state kind of keeps the steady hand while, all the nobility is fighting each other. That's a, another common theme, too, that you it, see. Exactly, exactly. So this role, the mayor of the palace, is like the chief of staff or the CEO of the king's household. And household's not like the household of the family. It's the running the operations of the government, right? So Charles himself was an illegitimate son of, of Pepin II, and he was also mayor of the palace. So this mayor of the palace starts to become hereditary. And Pepin had gained control of all three palaces um under uh, his time and and decided to adopt the title of duke and prince of the franks so when pepin died his illegitimate sons were already dead and he tried to pass his power to his eight-year-old grandson who was legitimate and there was enough of the ability who backed charles martel and after a few years of civil war he he takes on all of pepin's power and, and adopts this title of the duke and prince of the franks and he goes on to rule the Franks for 23 years, uh, you know, notionally, even though they're still kind of a king. Uh, and that defeat of the Umayyad Caliphate that we talked about in the beginning was, you know, really the crowning achievement. So Martel dies in 741. Uh, the major domo positions go to his two children, Carloman, a name we'll see a lot. Pepin, yes, another Pepin. This is Pepin the Short now. Uh, they actually get along. Shocker of shockers. Carloman mm. uh, retires and defi- decides to devote his life to the church. So now Pepin has control over all of the Franks. Um, he deepens the alliance with the church, deposes the last Merovingian king, is elected king of the Franks in 751. And this is now establishing the Carolingian dynasty. Um, so his alliance with the Pope helping secure territory in Italy from the Lombards, uh, you know, gives the papacy this elevated relationship between Rome and the Franks at this point. And this all ties back to the fact that the Eastern Roman Empire 
could no longer help protect the Pope in Rome, the Bishop of Rome, because they're busy fighting back the Muslims. And we'll right. refer to the Eastern Roman Empire here, heretofore as uh, the Byzantine Empire, which is, you know, really what history talks about this era as. Yeah. N- now, the most famous of the Carolingians was Charlemagne. And you've probably heard that name. Pepin the Short died in 768, passing the rule to his two sons, Charles and Carloman. This Carloman died in 771, leaving the entire kingdom once again united under one ruler. Now, Charlemagne did not stop there. He extended his empire throughout Italy by defeating the Lombards and east through much of what was known as the Avar Cognate, a tribal society that held the region previously held by the Huns, Rugi, the Rugii, and the Byzantine Empire in modern-day Austria, Hungary, and Slovenia. He also conquered the Saxons to the north, creating a large empire in the west, not seen since the Romans. Notably, Charlemagne was crowned emperor of the Romans by Pope Leo III on Christmas Day in 800, and he died in 814 with his only surviving son, Louis. And, you know, he he had a large bit of territory from, you know, the top of Europe near Britain down to Italy over to parts of Spain even. So, uh, large expansion. And Louis the Pious, however, had multiple sons. Uh, so, his successor, he, he tried to get ahead of the future problem and make a secession plan, which became messier when he tried to add another one of his sons to the plan, because you know how this works. Oh, well, it, it's like, oh, I want some. I didn't get enough. He got more than me. Uh, so, the older brothers revolted and civil wars ensued, this time before Louis died. And when he actually died in 840, things continued to shake out until the Treaty of Verdun in 843, when the empire was divided amongst his three sons. So, Matt, tell us how this division of the empire worked out. Yeah. All right. So, buckle up. Lots, lots of names here. <laughs> so, the, the eldest son is Lothair, and Lothair was named co-emperor while Louis, Louis was, was still alive, while his father was still alive, and received primacy over what became known as Middle Francia. And this was kind of an unnatural creation that went all the way from the, the English Channel down into Italy, included the capital city of Aachen, parts of Burgundy, not all of Burgundy, and the Frankish territory that goes down into Italy. And, and then he dies in 855, after which this kingdom is rearranged and divided amongst his three sons. So you get Louis II, known as Louis the Younger, and he's given the title of emperor and receives just the Italian portion. Louis II only lives until 875 and dies without an heir. More on that in a little bit. Lothair II receives the northern part of the kingdom, which is now referred to as Lotharingia, and Lothair dies also within a, without an heir in 869. So his territory gets split with the east part going to East Francia and the west part going to West Francia. And then finally, we have Charles, um, who receives the territory of the Provence and, and Lower Burgundy, but he actually dies much earlier and airless again in 863. So his territories were split and incorporated to uh, Lothair II and Louis the Younger that we just talked about. So got all that so far? Yeah, I mean, it's just to, you see, it's more about the patterns. I mean, the listeners, we don't expect you to learn all these people, and you can check the notes if you really do want to. It just is about showing the pattern of how these territories develop in, in, in this age and how this all works. And so let's continue on with East Fran- Francia. It was given to Louis, 
nicknamed later in history as Louis the German, which includes Saxony, Bavaria, Austria, Alemannia, and Car- Carthania. Yeah. And Louis ruled from 843 until 876 in his death, and then his kingdom was split again amongst his sons. Carloman became king of Bavaria and briefly king of Italy after the death of his cousin Louis the Younger until his death in 880. His second son, known as Louis the Younger took the kingdom of Saxony and succeeded his brother Carloman as king of Bavaria until his own death in 882. The youngest son, known as Charles the Fat, inherited Alemannia and parts of Burgundy. And he and his two brothers actually cooperated, which we know is rare, and he inherited all of his brother's lands after their deaths by 882, which also made him emperor. Now, West Francia was given to Charles, known as Charles the Bald, who was much younger than his two brothers. West Francia was the western two-thirds of what we think of as the modern France. When his nephew, Louis II, the younger, the son of Lothar, died in 875, the kingdom of Italy and title were claimed by both Charles the Bald and Louis the German. And the Pope sided with Charles and granted him Italy in the title of emperor. Charles had eight sons and died in 877. Surprisingly, only his eldest son survived him. So Louis, known as the Stammerer, inherited West Francia. Louis made no attempt to claim Italy. It was at, at this time at, at Carloman, son of Louis the German, who was elected king by the Italian nobility. And when Louis the Stammerer died just 18 months after his father, West Francia was split between his two adult sons, Carloman II and Louis III. Louis died in 882, Carloman in 884, but with no heirs. And Louis had one other child that was born in 879, also named Charles. So if you're keeping track at home, despite all the divisions of the empire, there is only one adult heir in the entire lineage of uh, the Charlemagne, uh, and that is Charles the Fat, who through attrition now claims the entire Frankish kingdom in 885. And we leave at that point, Matt. Yeah, so we're, we're unified again. Not necessarily through any major military conquests, but just through death and attrition and, and you know, somewhat of cooperate, cooperation amongst cousins and nephews and brothers and, and all sorts of craziness. And and we'll we'll pick up this story in a couple of episodes where we figure out what happens next to Charles the Fat and how that leads to our story back on the island of Britain. Well, that ends this episode of the History of Modern Politics. My name is Chris Spangle. That is Matt Whitliff. We invite you to join and become an HMP Plus member, which is what I just decided to call it right now. Uh, join join the uh, HMP Plus, and you can get the video. You can get uh, early release, but sometimes by six to nine months, you're going to get these episodes early. Uh, you can get the reading notes, the the show notes, tons of great stuff when you join as a member at historyofmodernpolitics.com and or wallplus.com. Thank you to all of our uh, We Are Libertarians listeners and thank you to our patrons there. Thank you so much, Matt. We appreciate it. Thank you, Chris. We will see you again in two weeks.